You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another week of The Perth Property Show. I'm your host, Trent Fleskins. We are talking subdivision again with our subdivision expert, my favourite subdivision project manager in Western Australia, and he's my project manager. It's David Gilbert. Thank you very much. I appreciate you coming back into the Soundproof Studio, Matt. Yeah, thank you for having me back and looking forward to it. Keeping you away from your work, I understand, yeah. but uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your time. Last time we spoke about an introduction, we really were just sitting on the basics of what is subdivision, how does it work, what are the R codes, splitting up land, how does that uh, suit. We prefaced that this one would be all about talking on the costs the risks and those two tie themselves in together. Uh, and I guess we can have some uh, realistic conversations about time frames and things like that because time is money in property and investment given most of uh, these things are financed with uh, interest and that is a big effect on any development. Yeah, we did touch on the, uh, the timelines last time as well, speaking about the typical subdivision taking about a year. So when you take that into account, it does become quite a long time frame and interest on any loans would certainly become a huge factor in terms of your feasibility of doing a subdivision. As much as a project manager in a subdivision space will work as fast as they can, uh, a lot of this timeline really is dictated by how fast the stakeholders, the government organisations move, isn't it? Yeah, we touched on it again last last time I was here. So seven months would be the quickest time that you would ever get a subdivision done. And of that, you're looking at about that long time frame in terms of just paperwork. Most of the rest so of the to, work gets done in the space of a couple of days or in the meantime, right? Yeah, so if you were getting it done, all your subdivision work, so clearing the lot and everything else was done prior to getting the conditional approval, you will have seven months worth of paperwork waiting for different agencies to clear your subdivision. Yeah. So it's important that you tee all these works up together and submit the right applications so you're not waiting three weeks to get a refusal to say, oh, you didn't fill out this properly. So that's one of the huge hurdles for any first-timers is actually filling out that paperwork correctly and making sure that you're providing all the correct evidence that whatever authority it is can actually clear whatever the condition that they're responsible for. These conditions can range from three or four or five to 14, right? Yeah. In number. Yeah. So within our own work, we've got conditional approvals that range from three conditions all the way up to 14. And it's a variety of different conditions as well. It's very important that if someone is looking at doing a subdivision, that they get professional advice. And what those conditions could be, because they all have a cost. Exactly. And just because your mate did it in another sub- suburb you know, nearby... Or next door. Or next door. We've been looking at properties where there are now development contributions which add an extra seven, ten grand to your subdivision, yep. whereas the property across the road wouldn't get that condition. So let's rattle off some costs right now as to what they might be and we'll start adding it to our calculator in our heads as to where this is going. Because I think a lot of people think that they go and buy a block that's subdividable, easy enough. We all can go and buy a house. We then put an application in for subdivision, costs a couple of thousand bucks probably, and then a month or two later, we have it split up, ready to sell. That, if, if only, right? Yeah, if only. And that's what a lot of people think. That that's the time frames and costs involved in it. So where should we start, Dave? Start from the very start. So... The first item that we've got to get is a feature survey. Mm -hmm. So pick up all the features on the land and from there we'll draw a subdivision design on there and then that 
is what gets lodged to the West Australian Planning Commission to WPC yep. as an application. So that first process as a ballpark figure, you'll be looking at somewhere close to four grand just to submit that first application. Of yep. that four grand, you've got an application fee that's close to three two plus whatever survey works cost depending on, on your lot size and design that you're going for. And where are you getting these surveys and designs done? From strategic surveying, hopefully. That'd be a start. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a good start. But any surveying company? Any surveying company can, can um, do those initial plans for you. You can even contact builders who will typically outsource that, but you can engage them to arrange that sort of works for you. Yep. Important, really, I think, to talk quickly about the design. Uh, often you go to a builder, they'll get the design carved up specifically to their build that they put forward, or you go straight to a surveyor, they'll carve it up probably equally or as equally as possible or as you know square in number as possible. But really, for me, I find that consultation between both surveyor and builder and a number of builders gives you both the optionality of being able to speak to a number of builders and tender out that build but also make sure that you're not just creating a block that looks good on paper, but really is going to be quite expensive to build on. Yeah, and you touched on the actual process that we would prefer that you do. Is go through and think about, okay, the end product that's going to be here is going to be a house. So what sort of designs are possible going to be there? But a lot of the time, people might only be doing it as a land subdivision. So what you are designing in terms of subdivision layout, you need to think about, what is that future owner going to place there? And if you can do a subdivision design or a lot shape that's going to be more forgiving for any sort of house design, the easier you're going to be able to sell that lot. Well, I mean, some of the, the R codes allow for an eight metre wide frontage, right? Mm-hmm. But if it's in an area where no one's going to afford to build a two-storey house, it's going to be very hard-pressed to be able to get anyone to want to buy that block because they're not going to be able to build a one-storey house on there of any real amenity. Yeah, it's good examples all the way for a city of Joondalup where it's you get the split zoning now where it's originally R20 with split zoning of R40, R60, you could subdivide your lot to as small as 120 square metres, but then who's going to be the person buying it? Well, they're going to build on it. So you need to take into consideration of where you are, who are you trying to sell this product to, and what is that product that you're wanting to produce at the end? We've got our survey done. We've designed a subdivision that meets good building opportunity for us or the future buyer. We've lodged our application. It's taken 90 days. It's come back with a conditional approval. What might those conditions be and what cost, cost implications might they have on us? Yes, so we're up to four months now. So we've, yep. done so all, we've got done some interest at that point. Yep. So the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to get letters from Western Power and Water Corp. They will be informing you that you need to connect to underground power and also pay additional connection fees for the utilities. So you're going to get... As an example, water court for a two-lot subdivision, you're going to be looking at somewhere close to five-eight. So if you allocate for six, it's probably a good idea, but you're going to need to engage a plumber to do some internal works as well. So if we've just grouped water together and sewer, you're looking at about seven grand there. Western Power and electrician, you're looking at somewhere close to potentially four to six grand. It depends. You know, if you've got a house, and most of these houses that are subdividable, they still got overhead power. Western Power is pretty smart. They've gone, no, we're not going to bother with changing this under our money. We'll wait until it gets us to be subdivided and then we'll put that as a condition for the developer to pay to convert that front house and the back house into underground power with a green dome. Yes, so keeping your existing house, if you are retaining it as overhead power, isn't going to be an option. You're going to have to convert it. You have to pay an electrician for that, right? That's right. And Western Power for the Dome. And it's also one of these items where if you've seeked the right advice from the start, you're going to have a design that may take these items into consideration. 
so that you, when you request your Western Power connection or a new dome, it's placed in a location where you're not having to pay extra money for a main site switchboard, which you might not know about. Or That's an extra 1500 bucks. Yeah. When you start adding all these numbers up and the additional costs that come from not knowing what these items could be, and then you look back at it in hindsight, I think, well, I just wish I paid someone to... Know, look at this fully for me or to manage the project for me. That's always something to keep in mind when you're doing these things for the first time. All these items are changing and they're always... Going up. Going up <laughs> and there's new conditions required. It's a snowball effect in terms of costs. Yeah, we've spoken about Watercorp. We need to pay these taxes essentially. For every new lot you're creating, it's around six to seven grand. Yeah. Right. So if you're doing a triple X, you'd be thinking more like 14 grand as a round number. For Western Power, they want you to convert to underground. If you've already got underground, they still want you to pay for extra connection fees. So there's the cost. Who else would be putting conditions on this subdivision? The rest of the other conditions are going to be ones from council. The most common ones are obviously going to be clearing the lot because what you're trying to deliver at the end is a lot that's going to be able to be developed on. So uh, that, a stock land, saddly piece of land, right? Yeah, if you think about just that, those big, large subdivisions, greenfield subdivisions, that's essentially what you're trying to provide but on a smaller scale. So your lot has to be clear of any obstructions, it needs to have access, and it needs to have access to utilities. And that's what you're trying to actually provide in this process. So we've got water, we've done power, we're now having to actually provide the land portion. So that land portion is going to be a demolition contractor to clear out the lot, and then it may be any retaining if, if required, you probably want to do some fencing. Probably want to do some fencing. The fencing won't be a condition of the subdivision, but it's going to be an item that you're going to want to add in because you are wanting to present the best product that you can to any perspective. Especially purchases. for a house behind a house. A lot of people, when they're starting off, they think that a house behind a house is the cheapest or a retain and split where they just sell the land at the back. Often it's not because the number of conditions the council puts on, which are things you have to pay for with cash, become much more expensive than knocking it down and all you have to do is a demolition. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So if you're doing a house behind a house, you'd be looking at other things such as having to construct the access way, including so the drainage, driveway, including yep. the, yeah, the driveway, which may later on actually get destroyed when the, the person build. goes to build. City of uh, Swan does a crazy thing. We've seen this a bit. Calamunda as well, where it doesn't matter what your plan is, it doesn't matter if you've built at the back or not, or you're about to build, uh, they don't care. They want that driveway uh, ripped up, replaced with new stormwater and new paving and even if you want to bring a concrete truck in next week for the slab at the back not their problem yeah and i, I do understand their perspective of what they're trying to do in, in that instance this is where like bonds were a, a great idea but financially it comes a bit difficult having to pass it on is that they want to provide a, a lot that anyone can go develop on so even though if you're thinking you're building on it or you're the one going to be doing the future works there's no guarantee from the council's perspective that you will actually go ahead with that work so once they issue the titles, they've got no control over what's now been done. Mm. So they're, they're trying to protect everyone in that sense, but it does also add these additional costs, which would be nice if we were able to well, go back to bonds or if they're a bit more flexible. Limestone access track. Yeah. Something like yeah, that. Yeah. That's become really hard though, especially when it's mandated with councils these days a lot that if you're going to have common property, the front house needs to have a dog leg driveway coming off of that common property. It makes it really hard if you're going to have a limestone access way for the driveway portion and then have bricks or halfway a concrete down. slab halfway down for the front lot as new driveway. It just doesn't really work, right? Yeah. And we've seen other people do that before. Good luck selling it. And if you're going to go that far of all that sort of works, you might as well do the full thing. What we're missing here, really, we've spoken about look, the physical charges 
of you know new driveway, new stormwater, maybe some retaining, definitely a demo. We're going to need a crossover upgrade normally or replacement. What about government charges in terms of taxes? Right now costs, you've got a smile duties, on your face. Yes, <laughs> the juicy stuff that everyone scratches their head at, the money grabs. Tell me about them. Uh, there's a variety of different avenues that councils have for those contributions. So there's going to be items such as right away, if you have an access way at the back. Um, making making co- you rebuild that right away, even making, if you don't use it? Making you build it or contribute to a future cost of, of them doing it. There goes 15 grand. There goes 15 grand. A uh, lighting contribution, there goes four grand. If there's a development contribution plan in place for that council, you may be looking at somewhere between seven to 14 grand that you won't see any works for. It's literally just paying into a general fund that the council will use in the future to do upgrades in your area. What about POS? Tell us about that juicy one. Public open space. If you are doing a large subdivision, this is where POS becomes more applicable. Uh, if you're doing a big greenfield subdivision, they want to make sure that you're including parks and of course, different green sense. spaces. It makes sense in, in that sort of scale. It's a state government policy for Nigel Satterley and it all makes sense. Yeah, and... But that same policy that enforces that public open space contribution or or land seating is applied to five lot subdivisions and upwards. Sometimes three, right? Sometimes three, depending on what the council has in their own policies. So if you are just doing an infill development where there's no way that council is going to be adding any new land to this area, you're still paying a contribution of 10% of your land value as cash to council. Tens of thousands of dollars. Tens of thousands of dollars. You want to go do a triple X in the city of Stirling, tens of thousands of dollars. You want to do a side-by-side, there is no public open space policy that hits that that level of development. And you're not, it, you're not paying for an access way to you, construct either. Exactly right. So it can become super expensive. You wouldn't know it based on different councils to do, for example, a triple X. Go to city of Joondalup. They don't have a public open space contribution policy. Go to the city of Swan. They're normally worried above five. Kalamunda, five and above. Uh, city of Bayswater, five and above. Sterling, three and above. <laughs> and they've done that on purpose as well, I think, not just as a money grab, but to also stymie their, the onset from their ridiculous policies of blanket rezoning through Balga, Nolamara, Westminster to slow down the triple X's that are going in there. That's a very good way of actually looking at it is the the variety of different avenues that council have to try and control the way that development is taking place. Yeah. You know, you do have these giant areas where they've had the increase of densities, but they have all these other attachments to the design side of things trying to make sure that, look, we want you to develop, but we want you to do it in a certain way or we want to be look like we're trying to get you to develop, but also at the same time, making sure that we're protecting certain land sizes for the future development. So let's say we pay these works, these fees, uh, we get all through that stage. We then need to get the property pegged by a licensed surveyor, right? Yep. So There's so, some costs there. Yeah, so as soon as you've done the uh, the demolition and your property is clear, we can get the licensed surveyor in to put the subdivision pegs in. You need in that just to get the Western Power stuff sorted, right? Yeah, Western Power will ask for a peg to be installed prior to them actually installing any sort of underground power. As soon as you do that demolition, which should be the first item you do, you apply for all the different contribution fees from Western Power Water Corp. So demo, get the surveyor in, peg the lot, and then start rolling through any other items that are hanging on to the end. So the survey works alone just to do the pegging of the actual subdivision and for the license surveyor to actually prepare the plan that gets lodged to Landgate. That's the item that you're actually paying for in terms of expenses. You're looking at somewhere around you know, three and a half to four grand to, to do that process. Yep. And that kind of depends on who you're going to, what works have they done in that area. Yep. So it's not as simple as just rocking up GPS installing pegs. 
they're actually going back to the original plan that created a lot in the first place and trying to create a continuation of those original marks in the ground to your new subdivision. Make sure it all lines up Make to sure the millimetre. Make sure that you, everyone's getting what they're meant to get. Yep. Okay. There's obviously some lodgement fees with the government there. It all starts to add up. What are we looking at in terms of costs for your normal triple X? for example, as an average subdivision for a mum and dad survey strider investor? For a triplex, you'd be looking at somewhere around 60 to 65 grand, mm. depending on what your design looks like. A two-lot, you'd be looking at somewhere around 50 grand. If your council has any of these development contributions or POS in that, you're going to be adding to that cost. Yeah, 20, so, 30, 40, $50,000, depending on where and how expensive your land is. And in terms of your like a percentage of your overall costs, it's huge. Mm. That's you know, where that... It will stymie development going forward if, if it continues to be pushing the boundary further and further with these councils. Yeah, and, and if, you, if you're not getting that correct device at the start, you go for all the way of getting a conditional approval and then finding out... It's going to cost you $100,000. No, I've got all these additional costs I didn't know about. You know, to, to recap, we've gone from application stage of four months and four grand, including surveying and application costs, and then we've got demolition, say 20, 20 grand, depending on your size. Um, that's adding a little bit extra for other items. So up to $24,000. We've got Western Power and then also Water Corp. So together, what were they, 7, around 6, that 13. You're already, you can see how these items start adding up very quickly. In a very short amount of time short after of that time. conditional approval. The saving grace, I guess, for people is you don't have to get this done straight away. That's right. So once you get your conditional approval, you've got three years to complete all these works. So if you can't afford maybe to pay for all these cash costs on top of the property you've just purchased you got three years to save that up or pay it along the way. For a lot of first-time investors or developers, I should say, who are looking at this reality and going, geez, I didn't realize this, maybe we're out. I would look at it as a case of if you can lock down that site now, that is a good buy now for the right price, then you've made your profit now. You just have to realize that whenever, at whatever point in the future you can afford to uh, get to the end of that process on. My recommendation is if you're going to be doing something in terms of that long time frame of actually completing the works if you can pay off the water corp or the western power early because they just keep going up each financial year they're going to go up so you'll be kicking yourself if you go to pay it three years later and you realize that it's now costing you additional grand okay so we're hitting 20 minutes dave Mm -hmm. i reckon we wrap it up talking on costs there the next episode will be about lodging for formal approval with WAPC and moving through to titles. How's that sound? Yeah, going for that next phase of paperwork. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, mate. We'll speak to you soon. See you, mate. Okay, suburb spotlight time now. We are talking about one of Perth's oldest, most historic and most spoken about suburbs these days. It's the NIMBY town of Subiaco and we have Subiaco's number one agent. We have Nikki Pank in the studio and I think we've got a lot to chat about today. Nikki, thank you very much for coming in. Oh, that's a pleasure, Trent. Look forward to it. Hey, where do we start? Should we start with a bit of history? Oh, we can start with a bit of history, depending how long you want to go back. How far does your memory span? Um, yeah, it's a bit like that. <laughs> a bit longer than, I hope a lot longer than your lifetime, because Subiaco probably goes three or four of well, those. Well, Subi, I think, originally, well, if you're going to go right back, it was the Noongar people who had it. But in, I think, around 1851, the Benedictine monks came and settled there. That's why it was called Subiaco, because it came from the Italian Subiaco over there. And they... They settled there for quite a few years. Any remnants there these days of any of their buildings or have they just gone decades ago? I would say they've pretty much gone. Sort of the earliest buildings in Subi now are probably about late 1800s. 
whereas that was 1851. It's not that much difference, but not too much evidence. These days, when most of us think about history, we think about the good old days of maybe 20 years ago in Subiaco where it was pumping and things have slowed down. Obviously, there was uh, a lot more residential life closer to the main streets. We're talking about Rockaby and Hay Street as the main thoroughfares. Tell us about the lifestyle of how that has evolved over the decades. Okay, well, I guess an interesting part in the history of Subi is more around the 70s, where um, 60s and 70s, Subi was kind of one of those areas where it was a student hangout, a lot of shared houses by uni students, quite a bit of sort of interesting behaviour amongst young people. And so the houses were fairly run down and, and, and basic. They'd just been let go. And then it came to its own around the mid-80s where people started coming into Subiaco and restoring and renovating and extending. The money started coming in. Money started coming in. I think the realisation of what a great suburb it was, how convenient it was. How close it is. To, yeah, close to the, the city yep. and, and the character and everything. So it started going uphill from sort of early 80s. It really started to look good and the, and the old houses were not being pulled down, thankfully, but they were being restored and extended and turning turned back into beautiful homes to this day subiaco east that's the way things are still right some really beautiful restored federation time homes well not just east all 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 through subi it's actually pretty hard now to find a house in subi which is original and if you do find one and it comes on the market it's you get killed in the rush for it Mm. either to renovate or or to depending you know what era it is um, because a lot of people like to build in Subi but there aren't too many vacant blocks to do that now or block value houses left so luckily and happily for me because I love the history of Subi it's been the, the the lovely old character homes have been retained which is very rare most suburbs, they've gone. Yes, yes. And we had a big risk factor with the rezoning just a little while ago where the whole suburb was threatened by the proposed rezoning of pretty much three quarters of the suburb, which would have completely destroyed it. Uh, a little bit like back in the 60s and 70s when West Perth suffered that destruction and became office blocks instead yeah, of beautiful very much homes. So. And Subiaco is a bit of an extension of West Perth, right? Yes, yep. So we've got to really protect it. Let's talk about the different precincts of Subiaco because we don't just have the old restored Subiaco close to Thomas Road. We've also got a, you know, a lot of townhouses and apartments yep. north of the railway. We've yep. got Subiaco Square. There's a lot of density there and, and a different lifestyle there too, isn't there? Yeah, that all grew up in, the, in around 2000. Uh, when that land, which was industrial land before, really became opened up for for development and a lot of apartment blocks built there and still being built there in actual fact, which brought a younger younger crowd. crowd. It was a bit of a mix. It it was definitely a younger crowd uh, because they weren't really suitable for an older crowd for, for a lot of reasons. But yeah, younger investors, overseas buyers, a whole whole mix. But it was just kind of a little bit unfortunate at the same time as they were all being built, a lot of the good things in Subi were being taken out of Subiaco. Tell us about those because that is an important story for the last 20 years to where we are right now, yep. trying to revitalise uh, what is in some ways a ghost town of what it used to be, a, a shadow of what it used to yep. be on, on, the, on Rockaby Road. Well, the main features of Subi... Back in the day, and when I say back in the day, sort of uh, 20 years ago, 
what was the Subiaco markets, the pavilion markets. People love those. You had the cinemas, group of cinemas there. We had little eclectic shops with different, very different, a lot of handmade and, yep. things and a lot of character in there, which, and it, it became known as, as that sort of a suburb. So people would come to Subiaco for the day. They'd go to the markets. They'd go and have lunch somewhere. The destination. Yeah. yeah. It would be a day destination. They'd arrive on the train and, and that was I it. remember doing that when I was a young child. My mum would take me and we'd be at the supermarkets. We'd be, you know, strolling through the stores and uh, walk around Subiaco over and be like, oh, one day we might watch a footy game. Yeah. Those, yeah, I, I, you know, that, that jogs my memory. It is a memory of mine. And I'm the market queen, so I was at those markets every weekend. Yep. Um, so I remember it really, really well. Then all the apartments got built and then sort of things changed and the markets closed down at the same time the cinemas closed down. Don't you think that the apartments sh- would have been planned to have add more people, more foot traffic to support these small businesses and the markets? Well, the interesting sort of thing is that developments don't bring people to a place the amenities do. Okay, so they'll come, but people aren't going to come to see an apartment block. So people will live there, but they will go out to do other things where the action is. So if you take all the attractive amenities out of Subiaco, then people aren't going to have a reason to go there anymore. So it doesn't matter how many apartments you build, people might come and sleep the night in them, but they'll go off to, you know, another... Leadable. Yeah, they'll go off to Leadable, Northbridge Claremont. or Fremont or where, wherever the action's happening or there's interesting things happening. So it doesn't, it's not helpful in itself. Uh, you have to have the amenities and the population density, at, but you can't have one without the other. Yeah, very true. So where are we left with now? What's, what's happening? What's the future of Subiaco in your opinion? Okay, well, there are a few exciting sort of things happening in Subiaco. One of them is there is a development at the end of Rockaby Road which is actually quite an exciting development. Is this one Subiaco? This is one Subiaco. This is Mr Blackburn's yep. landmark development really. This is as big as it's, it's been I think. Yeah well what I like about it is it's giving back a lot to Subiaco. On the ground floor there are going to be all sorts of interesting exciting amenities. There's going to be a microbrewery and restaurants and uh, and then Buzz. have weekend pop-up markets. Uh, so they're spending an awful lot of money on that ground floor you know, environment to make it really appealing. And it's going to be a sort of thing that's going to attract people from outside Subiaco in. Also, the apartments that he's building are just not the basic one or two bed apartments with nothing else happening. He's catered very much for the downsizer and they are really the only people who, or not the only people, but a a major part of the the people who want apartments now because... Or the ones that have the money to downsize as well. Exactly. They're used to huge homes or big homes, so they don't want to go into some tiny little apartment. They want the facilities. They want the security. They want the top finishes. They want the space and the convenience and that is the one group of apartments that has got it all Mm. he's putting in fantastic things in in the complex such as private dining rooms so if you want to have you want to have a dinner party you uh, you can invite your friends there's a whole kitchen attached to it it doesn't cost you anything you can get your own caterers in you know these are sort of things that older people want to do they want to entertain but they they don't necessarily want to take on the whole and they don't need it on a daily basis either yep 
and it's got the pool and it's got the gym and it's got the facilities it'll be more like a community that group of apartments it won't be just a block of apartments so we're a fan of this type of apartment where it's catering for the local market yeah but where i can i feel something in your voice that you weren't much of a fan of the stuff around Royd house where it was for the younger first home buyers and investors who maybe didn't have any background in Subiaco to start with. Yeah, I wasn't really a fan of them. That's absolutely true because they didn't seem to be catering to anybody particular. Just let's put them up and see who comes. And a lot of them were bought by foreign investors. Yeah, and then those people aren't investing back into the community. And also quite a few of them are, are vacant. It hasn't really added to the atmosphere of Subi in, in my book. Okay, so for people outside of Subi who were maybe take a minute to let's sell Subi. Yeah. Can you tell us about the real amenities that people would be enjoying coming into Subi? For example, what are the top schools around town? Uh, we've got a new one obviously popping up very soon, but yeah. we also have some good junior schools. Sporting opportunities for the youngsters, uh, amenities for the uh, older type as well. H- hit me with the, with the sales pitch for Subiaco itself. Well, actually Subi has got a really, really good range of amenities for just about everybody. It has got the you know some of the top or primary schools we're always having families trying to get in to get into the catchment area of Rosalie Primary of Subiaco Primary School obviously Shenton College is a huge draw card and it's in the catchment area for that as well and the new Bob Hawke College you know when it gets up and well it's up and going now but when it really hits its straps yeah yeah so a lot of people even planning ahead now to get into the area we've got clients like a specific one in my head right now who are literally just trying to find something for the Bob Hawke College which is you know hasn't even started yet and and people are planning for that yeah well these days you have to plan ahead for you know these sort of things and now with the one apartments that's going to be a great place for older people to downsize too they used to all go to Crawley but there's no real amenity in Crawley and you know if you want a pint of milk you've got to get into your underground car park and cross two highways to go and get it whereas the amenity in Subiaco of going down the lift and out and you've got everything at your fingertips it's also right beside the station um which will take you there right yeah, you've got a Woolworths, you've got a Coles, um, you've got a Farmer Jacks, you've got pretty much everything as far as shopping's concerned. The railway line will be going to the airport by the end of next year. And there are a lot of nice shops in Subi. The theatre is still the a fantastic. The Regal Theatre is a huge draw card, yep. you know, and they have got cinemas opening up that are now built. I'm not quite sure when they're opening up, but... Um, Rosalie yeah. Park. I used to play soccer there a lot as a kid, and it's not just soccer there. There's rugby, cricket. That's a fantastic yeah. walking distance. There's a distance. lot of green space and yeah. the tennis courts there so there's it it lacks nothing really it's got a a heap of character and a heap of personality and it's just a beautiful beautiful area in a lot of ways not a first home homeowners or first home buyers market you sort of need to be established financially to get in well i think that's true in any city if you're going to uh, buy a house near a major city it's going to get more and more expensive the closer to the city that you get it's mm. it's, it's always been like that and the option for young people now is to buy a smaller property in a city um, but i find the trend at the moment is that a lot of young couples are wanting to go further out it might be to bayswater bassendine guildford way to get the the land and the house and the, the kind of family environment and they'd rather move out a bit and do that than buy a, a villa or a townhouse close to the city. Do you think that that's maybe something that Subiaco lacks and is going to lack with what is quite a protectionist rezoning strategy that's still not even approved? 
Well, I don't really or understand the. the I, I, I've got various thoughts about the, the strategy to build a whole lot of small units in Subiaco. But uh, as I warned in one of my columns to the developers, you need to be really careful what, what you do build there because if you're trying to attract young people, I mean, not everybody works in the city. And people who do work in the city and are younger are probably not want to go and buy a one-bedroom unit these days. It doesn't seem to be the trend. I mean, it's actually quite hard to sell a, a unit now. Yeah, and the more prices, the apartments, yeah. Yeah, uh, and the prices have dropped significantly, you know, like 25%. So I can't see why there's a huge drive to build units when nobody is actually seeming to want the ones that are available now. Well, let's talk about price points. Perfect segue. How cheap can it be in Subiaco to get something? As cheap as it gets is probably just under the $200,000 mark uh, where you'll get a one-bedroom unit in an older complex, a flat. Yep, 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 okay. And you're saying they're pretty hard to move. Well, they are because not really anybody wants them. I mean, at one stage, you couldn't couldn't buy anything for under $200,000 in Subi. But now that you can... We're not being killed in the rush for them. Yeah, okay. And let's move up a price point. Yeah, well, let's go to three three fifty. You can buy things now for three three fifty that you would have had to have paid five hundred for five, ten years ago. In that way they're good buys, but then we don't know what the future market's going to be if we're going to have a plethora of units built. It's the old supply and demand story. Isn't what are we it? buying at that price point? At three fifty, probably a nice one bedroom or a smaller two bedroom apartment. Apart- the newer ones? No, not the newer ones. Older ones still. Okay. Yeah. All right. You start off the new ones probably very high threes or four hundred, and it's going to be a one better. Okay. All right. Uh, what are we paying for our twos and three bedroom apartments in the north of Subiaco? The new ones. Yeah. The new ones, you're probably for a two by two, which is about 90 square meters, you're probably paying about 700 for. Yeah, okay. An old two by two, which may be about 65 square meters, you're probably paying 454. All right. How about the townhouses? There's some really nice townhouses. Yeah. Townhouses are sort of probably wafting around the mid sixes. Isn't that interesting that you can get a two bed apartment more expensive than a built on land townhouse well that's a smart two-bed apartment with good finishes and you know modern facilities and all of that a lot of the townhouses in Suba were built in the 80s an average one which isn't been totally specced up but isn't original you'd be talking around 650. What about the ones in the north on the western side of Subi Square? There's a precinct there full of townhouses that are quite well Are you talking about Subi Centro? Yeah. Uh, Yeah they're not regarded as townhouses even though they are sort of all joined they're all green title. Uh, Yep. They were probably averagely selling around 1.6 but have probably dropped to about 1.35 now. That's a very specific market there isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Right. You do have two million dollars properties there too but of course the, there, there's some beautiful average. places there for sure there are some really lovely homes and uh, let's get into old Subiaco mm. what are we paying to get uh, three four hundred square meters with a nice nice house on it three or four hundred square meters with a nice character home you're probably talking about one five mm. a really nicely beautifully extended renovated one uh, on a smaller block, one seven five, and then anything on a larger block which has got good character and in nice condition, you, you're up around the two mil. Yeah, wow. 
And what's the most expensive thing you've seen in the last couple of years go? I've seen one on Lake Avenue that went for three mil. That is overlooking the lake. That would be the high end for Subiaco. That would that would be a pretty magnificent house uh, or in a magnificent location. Wow. Well, that just shows you can go from 190 to three mil. Yeah. But to be able to get that family home, you are in the seven figures. Let's move into what is going to be the most uh, contentious part of today for other people listening, or for, potentially probably for people listening. You're either on one side of the fence or or the other when it comes to development. What is going on? Whether you agree with urban infill or you don't one thing that we can probably agree on straight away is that this is taking too long to make a decision as to where where this suburb's going absolutely well um i understand the need for infill i just don't understand why it has to be in the heart of our historic suburbs these are all planning issues and i've had a bit of a go at the planners because if you plan a railway from city of perth to joondalup you'd think that you would plan that you would have some higher density along that railway line but to get out to the very sort of outer reaches of of um, suburbia now and then suddenly go oh we can't go any further let's come back and and destroy the historical cities right next right next to you know the city center and destroy the history that has me totally i just don't understand that at all it seems like your perspective also reflects uh, a large portion of the local residents' perspectives as well in Subiaco, at least in the historic east part of Subiaco. Why would you rezone an entire suburb which was, you know, full of beautiful historic homes that people had spent an awful lot of money on? And the way they've done it has been, it's been like a game of Russian roulette. It's been like badly affected some people, well affected other people and not affected other people at all. So the people who have been badly affected, of course, they're up in arms about it because it's almost been very undemocratic from the way it's been done. And um, people have suffered and they and people will suffer a financial loss through it because of how their block will be affected by the zoning on each side of them. As you said, though, with everyone that's got a financial loss, uh, or perceived, uh, there would also be a lot of people with a financial gain. You look at Netherlands, for example, they had they, they are probably on the same pegging with Subiaco in terms of the level of local residents who aren't a fan of, of change in that space. And, you know, you've got properties on Smythe Road, for example. One real estate agent has sold, I think, six or seven in a row in the space of three or four months at 50% higher than they would have been a year ago. Uh, everyone's going, yep, sweet, I'll take my cash and move out and someone else can deal with the townhouses that come up on my block. Or I don't want to be next to the townhouses, I'll get out yeah. and I'll take my profit yeah. and I'll move, I'll take it somewhere else. Yeah. I think that there's probably a lot of pros and cons on both sides, but what we can't step away from is the state government's strategy which does put the onus on every council to carry some of the burden of increasing their infill numbers. So the one Subiaco development would help a lot in terms of increasing the density numbers. I guess the Subiaco Oval, which we haven't spoken about much, the Subiaco Oval redevelopment uh, area, there's a lot of space there to fill out a lot of those numbers. Is that where the opponents of urban infill in Subiaco would rather see that level of yeah. density to, and then still protect the historic area? Absolutely. I think most people feel uh, like I do. I'm not anti-development. I am anti-destruction of... Uh, a, a places of history because as we all know when we go overseas 
that when we go to a city, we don't go and see the latest land development. We go to the old city, the historical place, the interesting, um, the parts that have got character and the parts that have got soul. And you know, once we they're don't, gone, they're gone. They're gone. And West Perth was one of those areas that's gone. And I'm sort of pretty determined that it's not going to happen to Subi and Shenton Park. I don't understand why, when you've got places like Monterio Green, which is a big piece of land, why you can't put high-rise there, which which won't be destroying any history, won't be overlooking anybody or upsetting anyone. And uh, But then they'll go and sell green title lots there whilst over the road in railway road they'll they'll be knocking down houses for you know it, it doesn't make any sense to me yeah and i don't know how much sense is prevailing in the planning departments right now well what do you think about how uh, the council is dealing with this at the moment is it one where the council is going to be if it already isn't a puppet which is the point of councils, puppet representing the local word or do they not represent? Do you see in three or four years' time with the amount of support that the local action groups have, this ending up uh, being a good compromise for Subiaco? Is there, a good, is there a positive hope for that? Look, I think it might. There's still going to be people who will suffer and there, there will still be destruction. There's no doubt about it. My idea of a, of a council is to protect that to protect that suburb, and I would have been negotiating hard with the uh, West Australian Planning Commission on on their efforts, their first efforts of, of what they were planning to do. As it as it happened, I don't think the council fought hard enough for it. It, it had to come down to the people demonstrating and really taking the brunt of that. Uh, which is quite exhausting. A lot of people don't have time to do this. It's happening big time in Netherlands at the moment where all the community is getting together to fight because nobody's fighting for them, so they have to fight themselves. I really think that the, the council could have done a lot more to say, look, we understand your situation. Here are some ideas. I mean, we've got the whole of Princess Margaret Hospital site, a massive site. Uh, we have got the Oval and around the Oval. We have got space in Monterio Green which is just near the the train line there are lots of places to develop and develop well without destroying what's here already Mm -hmm. well I think this is going to be really interesting to keep watching in that space uh, from the outside for for a lot of people who enjoy Subiaco as a destination uh, but don't obviously have the vested interest that the residents in their thousands uh, have on a daily basis that drive Hay Street and Rockaby <laughs> Road and walk Hay Street and Rockaby Road and, and have invested in that lifestyle for decades. Be very interesting. Yeah. It is very interesting to watch because you've got two analogues there of two different uh, lifestyles but similar demographics where the state government's already thumbed down Netherlands. In From my personal perspective, what I think is a good compromise from where it started, most of it is literally just a block off of Stirling Highway and most of those properties need some renewal anyway the rest of it hasn't really been affected that much and then Subiaco where it's a bit more of a compact activity center and therefore uh, it's much more sensitive as to you move it out one more street it affects a lot more people so it'd be interesting to see how that rolls in comparison to how Nedlands rolled we'll move into that last part of today median house price now uh, this is gives this is a good little one to finish on because Nikki it's going to give you a chance to demonstrate uh, from your perspective what is your favourite uh, lifestyle in Subiaco uh, for an average Subiaco resident? Nikki, what is the median house price for Subiaco at the moment? The median house price is about 
1.15. Okay. And if Nikki Panka had $1.15 million in her pocket today, if you do let me know, (laughs) uh, what would you be buying today in Subiaco? I'd be buying a character home in a good street in maybe reasonably dilapidated condition. Um, Tell me that street. What would that street look like? Gloucester Street's my favourite. Okay, cool. <laughs> yep. That's the, the, look, people and will I, be looking that up. I do happen up. to have the most dilapidated house in Gloucester Street. Oh, there you go. So you'll be buying the house you've already bought. There you go. Walking the walk. Yep. Well, that's why I hold on to it. I bought it to store furniture cause for display. Uh, years ago, it cost me about 350000 That must be many years ago. It was about 20. Yep. Yeah. And it did incredibly well up until um, 2006. Uh, and then nothing much has happened since then. Well, that why. represents most of Perth, Absolutely. but to be able to move that well in that very short amount of time, what would be a very small mortgage these days, given if you bought it for the 300s, it demonstrates that in a good, a good buy and a good street, the worst house in the best street is literally what you're telling us, yeah, right? it's always been that way and it still is. That must be the strategy in Subiaco. Yeah. Nikki Pineke, thank you very much for what has been a very interesting a lengthy chat about one of Perth's most controversial suburbs in 2020. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see where we end up and I look forward to having you on again to chat. Subiaco, probably when the dust settles and yeah. we'll see where it looks. Exactly. And I look forward to that. Thanks, mate. We will fight the good fight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!